Hello, and welcome to The Framing Effect. I'm your host, Cherry Zhang. This show seeks to view the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business-affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals may affect the world. On our second episode of The Framing Effect, Bill Graham, United Nations Representative, President of the Dare to be Great Rotary Organization, and advocate for the United Nations 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, explains his ideas on education reform, international infrastructure development, and the importance of solving problems now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Framing Effect podcast, our second episode. Today, we are joined by the current president of the Dare to be Great organization, an advocate of global improvement, the United Nations SDGs, and education reform and also the Italian Diplomatic Academy representative to the United Nations in New York, Bill Graham. Bill, how are you doing today? Good, good. Sounds great. All right, we should just get right into your initiative. So for the first question, could you please explain the SDG movement and what the United Nations has to do with that? Okay. The, the United Nations task is to promote peace in the world. Uh, Starting here of thirty some odd years ago, uh, there, there was or even more. There was the recognition that peace uh, is very difficult if there if there are many problems facing the world that endangers peace. Uh, whether that is too much inequality, uh, too much poverty in certain areas, um, uh, and and other problems that are out there. So. Uh, in 20, 1998, I think this talk started, but in 2020 is the date most people think of, uh, the nations of the world got together and they set, they defined a set of global goals, which they called the Millennium Development Goals, uh, and they ran until 2015. And there was, I think, seven or eight goals at the time that were felt to be very important to the world and, and therefore to peace. Uh, in 2015, the nations of the world got together again, and they extended those goals, but they actually redefined them into 17 different goals, which in the meantime has been extended to 18 with the adding of space. Right. And uh, those they named the Sustainable Development Goals, and they run until 2030. So SDG is just the abbreviation of Sustainable Development Goals, which including things like ending poverty, ending hunger, uh, uh, providing a, a quality education to all, gender equality, protecting the planet, providing uh, affordable, clean water and energy to everyone, jobs for everyone, and so forth around the world. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been uh, with the Derby Great Club for almost half a year now. And, mm-hmm. you know, through every weekly, uh, biweekly meeting, I hear you discuss our initiatives. And the main one I hear about is education reform, specifically with education through mastery. Could you please give a brief definition of what that would look like and also how a system like that would function in the UN? I know it's long. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, just to, to clarify, uh, education is seen by many 
as the key to almost all the rest of the SDGs, uh, because we can't accomplish most of the SDGs unless the bulk of the population around the world is all pulling together, basically on the same rope in the same direction at the same time. And to do that, people have to have a, a basic understanding of what the problems are facing the world uh, and what is going on relative to those problems. And that gets back to them needing an, an, a, a quality education. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, the, there's a recognition uh, at the United Nations, and this is especially being championed by the Secretary General. Uh, in 2019, I recall, as they were talking about 2020, which was the 75th anniversary of the United Nations, uh, that he said, look, we're not going to have a celebration for the 75th anniversary because we really don't have anything to celebrate. Uh, there are massive problems facing the world, perhaps more so than at any other time in the history of mankind. And uh, at just at a time where we need everybody in the world to come together to address these problems, uh, we have more and more people and more and more countries around the world that are turning their backs on the idea of international cooperation and international institutions. So uh, he prioritized the idea that we have to find a way to get a, a larger percentage of the world population to become more aware of and concerned about these problems facing the world and more willing to do something about them. And was as we were thinking here about how could we do that? How can we get out there? I mean, there's so many people that are trying to get the word out about the various problems, some focused on climate change, some focused on equality, uh, some focused on on uh, other aspects, uh, and and it's very difficult. Uh, there's just so much noise going on in the media out there. It's very difficult to get a message across. About that same time, uh, we were going around daring young people to do something great. And uh, another Rotarian and I, we happened to visit a elementary school in Scotch Plains, New Jersey, and they had a kids care the kids care about the world basically club in that school made up mostly of nine and 10 year olds. And, and we dared them to go do something great. And we told them about stories like a 10 year old in Iowa uh, that when hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf coast in, in New Orleans, and they saw the victims of, of that uh, uh, catastrophe, uh, she said, we got to do something about this. And she got a bunch of 10 year old friends together and they decided they were going to raise a million dollars for the victims of Katrina. And they, uh, as adults, heard about that. They said, oh, yeah, 10-year-olds. Come on, get real. And 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 these 10-year-olds said, no, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do it by this date. Well, they came and went. They didn't raise a million dollars. They raised $10 million. So now this girl's on all the talk shows around the, the, the country. And she's going, what's all this fuss about any random kid could have done it. You just got to try. And to prove her point, she went home and she raised $10 million again for other causes. And uh, so we, we gave that example. We gave the example of a, a nine-year-old girl in England who whose teacher was in part of the class was saying here, a child dies somewhere in the world about every five seconds due to hunger. And uh, that really got to her and she got on a blog 
and she contacted all the, the, the people who read her blog and she raised enough money that she took 10,000, 10,000 of the world's poorest children off the streets of Malawi, Africa, got them into school and fed those 10,000 kids for a whole year, a nine-year-old girl. So we gave those examples and said, now you go do, dare, we dare you, go do something great. And we left. And a couple of weeks later, the principal of the school called us and said, you know, some of those kids you talked about, they have this idea they, they want to they tell you about. And we, we went to the school and, and, and the kids said, you know, we have a lot of children in our school who have a migration background. Maybe their parents don't speak English. Maybe they, their parents can't read. And uh, so they their reading is very weak. And we want to do something to help them improve their reading. Uh, but they said, we also heard about all those children in the world that can't even go to school because they have no food. So they have to spend all day foraging around or, or begging uh, for food just so that they can uh, uh, make it to uh, uh, live for another day. And so we said, uh, or they, they said, we want to do something to help those children be able to go to school and also learn to read. So those were their two ideas. And out of those two ideas, uh, they then uh, said, and our our solution idea is we're going to make a readathon, and we'll go out there and get people to sponsor us, and we'll read a lot, and we'll get a lot of our classmates to join in, and and we'll raise some money. But in the process of raising the money, our classmates will be reading, and they'll be improving their reading skills. So uh, we said, "Wow, that's great! Uh, good luck!" And we left again. And sure enough, they got 70 classmates together. They did a readathon for two weeks and they raised enough money to take 250 of these poor children off the streets in Africa, got them into school, fed them again for a whole year. And uh, when you think about that, that means every one of these children from age six to age 10 that participated dramatically changed the lives of three other children their age. How many people in the whole world can can say how many adults can say they've done something that has so dramatically changed the lives of another person maybe even saved the lives because the estimates are that those children they got into school one third of them probably would not have survived the year because of hunger dying of hunger and uh so uh there was a big ceremony there was a CNN Hero of the Year award winner, uh, a former UN ambassador, the congresswoman for the that congressional district, the mayor of the of the city came, issued a proclamation, and all telling these kids, "You're heroes! You're great! You're, you're fantastic!" And we even had videos coming in from students their age uh, in Africa, the Middle East, Europe, Latin America. Uh, where these kids in these other schools are saying, we heard what you did. You've inspired us. Now we want to do something great. And uh, so about three, four weeks later, I was chaperoning some high school students to an event. And I just happened to mention this award ceremony and what these kids had done. And and a group of 16-year-olds said, wow, a man, what, 70 school children went and so dramatically changed the lives of 250 children. Wow. Imagine if, and I'm thinking they're about to say, we could do that too. But that's not what they said. They said, imagine if we could get 70 million kids 
to participate in a readathon, how much we could change it in the world. And that began an idea. I helped them put something on a, a Facebook page. And somehow, I don't know how, 20,000 people found this Facebook page that, that I don't know how to publicize or anything. And we had young people from about 35 countries around the world contacting them saying, we love the idea. How can we be part of this? And out of this grew this, this movement. Well, anyway, back to combining that to this whole idea that how do we mobilize how do we mobilize hundreds of millions of people? Because to, to get 10,000 people in the world to help working on the SDGs when we have a population of 8 billion, is it's not even a statistical measurement. It's such a small amount of people. Uh, so how do we get the hundreds of millions of people engaged? Uh, and here we're talking about how we can get 70 million in, in, engaged there. And out of that, looking at it and saying, how would we go about that, getting maybe the secretary general or somebody else to issue an appeal for all primary and secondary schools around the world to participate in this global uh, readathon, uh, that that is a way to to get hundreds of millions of children. There's, there's 1.4 billion uh, children in K through 12 schools around the world. That's not counting all the ones in the age group that are not in school. And uh, so uh, the estimate was that 500 million, that we might be able to get 500 million students to, uh, to participate, be able to raise potentially billions of dollars uh, because they would, if they each read just 45 minutes a day for, for a month, that would be declared to be read for a better world month. Uh, that would be 10,000 hours read uh, or 10, 10 billion, 10 billion hours read during that month. And you don't have to think that uh, wouldn't take a lot of money. We see in developed countries, a lot of these readathons like that can can raise up to five or six dollars per hour read. And uh, even if we count for developing countries that maybe they're only getting five or six cents on the other extreme and then those in the middle, it's not hard to imagine that we might end up with 50, 60, 70 cents per hour read on average across the world. Well, when you multiply that by 10 billion, it's 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 a number of billions of dollars, which would be enough to reduce the number of children in the world who are not in school at all due to poverty or hunger by literally tens of millions. And if it was repeated annually to reduce that number potentially to zero by 2030. So the the thought then came about, okay, if we can get these hundreds of millions of students participating, when, when the readathon's all done, we can have an award ceremony in every community around the world called uh, on a day that we declare to be International Honor the Readers Day. And those all those students that had participated in the readathon would be able to be declared official global citizen heroes. Because the hours they read led to the raising of the funds that so dramatically changed the lives of millions of the world's poorest children. And that should make so many of them so proud and their families so proud of such a, an incredible uh, achievement. Because there's no nothing like that that has ever been done around the world. That they would be looking and saying, what else could we do? How, how can we do more? And that creates the opportunity then 
uh, to get them engaged in, in, for example, one project that we're looking at is a future we want competition where we get every school uh, participating where the students analyze their community and say, hmm, where are we relative to the achievement of the SDGs? And what would it take for us to completely achieve the SDGs in our community, in our neighborhood, and create a presentation talking about the future they want and, and what it would take to get there, and then inviting the general public to vote for which school has the best presentation in their opinion for bringing about the world they want in, in their community, first at the local level, and then the winners at the local level can go up to a regional level and repeat the competition there, and then going on up to a state level, national level, and eventually a world level. Uh, and in the process, because you've got the general public watching all these presentations, uh, and, and we expect a high participation, because almost everybody's got kids, uh, their own kids, their nieces, their nephews, their neighbors' kids, who, uh, in other words, a reason to get in there and vote for for their favorite group, that they're hearing all these presentations talking about what the problems are, the SDGs, talking about what could be done about that. And so that goal of creating that awareness uh, and concerned about the problems of the world and getting people willing to think about what can we do, we accomplish that. So this read that's a long story, but it's sort of marrying together this idea that a readathon, which now fits perfectly as an answer to COVID, to the education losses due to COVID, um, that could actually expand to address the more global need that the UN has presented of how do we get a larger share of the general public to get behind the achievement of the SDGs. So on one hand, we're doing something about SDG four, which is education. And on the other hand, we're doing something to mobilize the world's general population to be more willing to get engaged regarding the SDGs. Sorry about the length of that, but it's it's a little bit complicated. It is, I mean, it is complicated, but I think it's, a, it's one of the, uh proposals that i must agree with because i think i mean the only logistical part of it that would be kind of difficult would be to get companies to sponsor every hour red but even in that sense you could the companies doing it they don't have to spend that much money they just put in exactly, a few cents. exactly right yeah. and also it'd be great for pr right? You're exactly helping. and yeah. and let's face it rotary clubs because we anticipate that in each local community, it'll be the Rotary Clubs, Lions Clubs, or the like, who will approach the local businesses. Keep in mind, they're not they're not uh, um, they're not being uh, hit up to say, "Oh, let's donate some money to reduce the number of children in the world who are not in school due to hunger." What they're being uh, approached on is, uh, "Would you be willing to pledge some money to create an incentive?" for your own students in your community to improve their reading. Mm. And so, uh, the, you know, when you get into these ideas of a readathon, you have to ask, well, is the main purpose to raise money or is the main purpose to incent the, the readers to read more? And it's, it's really, it's doing both. 
Uh, and so we see that as an opportunity. The other opportunity is that we see is right now there are, are hundreds of millions or billions of dollars uh, being donated around the world to combat hunger and inequality, promote education and so forth already. And what we intend to do is approach all these philanthropies and organizations and individuals uh, that are pledging money and say, you know what? Why don't you do a twofer? If we go here and say, look, we, we want to reduce the number of children not in school due to hunger, uh, which means we've got to find a way to feed the children or to promote them being in school to get an education. And that's something you wanted to donate to. Uh, what you're doing is your, your donation is first being used as an incentive to promote the reading. And then after the it's all done, it still continues on to the same goal that you originally had to uh, to reduce hunger uh, or illiteracy. Right. Um, I know we, we touched on a little bit a little bit at the beginning, but I think I found a good way to like relate um, ed mastery education with the readathon and the initiative. Because when you with the education through mastery when you teach someone to understand the intrinsic value of education, they'll learn for life. But if you, with the Reedson and the other initiatives, if you can get someone to understand the intrinsic value of generosity, they can change the world. And that's what we're trying to achieve, right? Yeah, it is. But, you know, it's not something where we're looking to say, let's go out and, and preach then to to the participants. You, you should, you should, uh, sacrifice things or do things for the sake of others. But what we are doing here is, is let's take a typical classroom and uh, you know, the local people have for that class, uh, they've gotten so much don donations that they know every hour read is worth a dollar. Let's just say for the sake of argument, it's worth a $1. Uh, and uh, we know here, there are organizations out there that uh, will feed uh, uh, starving children in school if they come to school uh, for as little as $21 for a year. They can feed them for a year. And it's one meal a day, but it's a nutritious meal a day. And and from medical perspective, it, it, it would be adequate. So uh, the that means here for every $21 that they raise in that class, uh, that uh, they've impacted the life of a child. So you know how a lot of these fundraising uh, organizations, they have a thermometer type of thing there that shows, okay, here's our goal and here's what percent of our goal we've raised so far. And they keep you know painting it on up there to, until they, they reach 100%. Uh, but in this case here, instead of going and saying, okay, here's how much money we've raised, uh, the teacher every day can say, okay, students, these are how many lives you've you're going to impact, and and so that we start getting in here that well it's not just about some anonymous dollars or some uh, uh, abstract idea, but it's actual lives that you're you're impacting, and the the idea is to get the young people feeling so proud and 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 saying oh wow you know come on we if we just spend a little bit more time we we can help five more children to, to be able to have a future and get that thinking going there. And it's accomplishing what you, you were saying here and getting them to realize the value of, of helping others also realize their ability to have an impact on changing the world. So um, I, I think 
that's a little bit uh, uh, how we're thinking. Another thing you just said was, though, the the idea of the mastery education. You know, uh, again, we we have been looking at ways to improve education outcomes, uh, and uh, we've we've identified some ways to do that. But the key in the future, because the goals, according to the United Nations, they had an education summit just two months ago uh, at the UN. And uh, uh, the, the one of the primary goals going forward is everyone in the world needs to become a lifelong learner because the value of knowledge has, is getting shorter and shorter and shorter because things are changing so fast. So to be a lifelong learner, the, one of the first things are you have to learn to be an independent learner. Because when you're 30 years old, there's no teacher standing up and saying, okay, now tomorrow I want you to do this homework. You know, uh, so you've got to on your own say, I need to know this or I want to know this and and know how you can go and, and acquire that knowledge. So that has to, you have to learn that somehow. And our feeling is that's what we have to do in, in transforming education is transform education to where uh, young people learn to be responsible for their own education. So it's not the teacher who's responsible for their education. They are responsible for their education and they have to learn to become an independent learner. You know, if you have a situation that you have maybe two seventh grade math teachers in a school, the odds are they're not all, they're both equally uh, proficient in, in teaching. One's probably better than the other. So is that fair that there's a luck at a draw that you might have gotten the, the less proficient teacher and somebody else a better one? If the teacher is the one driving the education, that's what happens. You're, you're stuck. You didn't get as good a teacher. But if the learner is driving the education, it doesn't make any difference to you because the teacher is just one of many resources that you see available for you to achieve your educational goals. So uh, the again, the problem is, how do we get the students to take that step to go and say, okay, I'm going to go accept the responsibility for my education, and I'm going to go learn how to become an effective, confident, independent learner. But if we can get these hundreds of thousands of young people taking a step, because a teacher told them to, but once they got into it, they realized, hey, if I read another 20 hours, I changed another life. Uh, so that once they're into that, and then we can turn around and go to the point of saying, you know what, we have a project to close the education gaps around the world by helping you become an independent learner. And now we've got these hundreds of thousands of young people at least listening to us when we can propose, here's ideas of how you can take ownership of your own future, how you can influence whether you're going to become a global entrepreneur, whether you happen to be a poor child uh, growing up in DR Congo uh, or you're growing up in, in a wealthy suburb of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, uh, that the first step is you've got to have people, these young people listening to you and interested in what you have to say to be able to go and put proposals in front of them. So the readathon creates that atmosphere, uh, gives that confidence I can do something to a lot of people. Uh, and now you're able to expose them to the idea of become an independent learner and 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 take charge of your, your future. So that's the relationship there. Hmm. Um, this, I intended this podcast to be primarily about 
behavioral economics and uh, the economy in general. So I want to talk a little bit about that. So education reform with all of these ideas that you're talking about would fundamentally improve the status of life for kids and individuals in all around the world. But of course, uh, countries that need the most reform are typically seen in Africa, uh, maybe South Asia. We see a lot of um, African representatives and Pakistani representatives in our uh, meetings. Mm -hmm. And these countries are hoping to improve their economy. And we've seen a lot of SDG development from countries such as uh, China and India, who are keen on improving their own economies. So could you talk a little bit about SDG development in these countries? China is, we have to first of all recognize China is an exception to everything. Right. When we look here at the, at the goals, the global goals, the SDGs, the MDGs before that, uh, one of the things we see is that most countries in the world are further away from achieving the SDGs today than they were when they were first announced in 2015. In fact, in certain areas like climate change, they're further behind today than they were in 1992 at the Rio summit on, on climate change. Uh, so, uh, but the, the big ex exception to that is China. Maybe not in, in climate change, although uh, uh, China, anybody who's traveled in China and you see the number of electric cars, you see the number of buildings that are, are uh, carbon neutral, uh, you see here that when the whole world is suffering massive uh, uh, desertification due to deforestation, uh, that China has gone uh, from losing 15,000 square kilometers of uh, greenlands a year to desert to uh, now reclaiming a thousand square kilometers of, of desert land and turning it into greenland each year. And that number is increasing. But they're the the only ones that are are are, are doing that, and and they're still simply because of the massive industrialization that they had to go through. Uh, they they are still a major polluter in the world still. But they're they're doing maybe more than anybody else. But if we look at education, we look at poverty, we look at hunger. Uh, Seventy percent of all the improvement in those fields in the entire world is China uh, in the last uh, two to three decades. And uh, so, on the one hand, let's that's that, but that shows us it's doable, and that's the important thing there that we can see it's doable. But if we turn around now and look at many of the countries in Africa, look at sub uh, South Asia, uh, we see many countries that have not been making that improvement that have been losing ground. There are 150 million more people living in poverty today in Africa than there was 20 years ago. So. Uh, one of the challenges there, and you bring up the economics, is 100% true because there are so many university graduates in those countries who can't find jobs. Right. And part of the reason is we go and say, oh, well, we get, you know, maybe we have 90% of people not getting an education, but we've got 10%. They're getting a world class education today. Why don't we find, try to increase the percent that gets a, a world class education from 10% to 15%? That's a 50% improvement. Wow, that would be fantastic. So they do something like that. 
Problem is, the other 85% of the population cannot afford to pay for the services of those people who get an education. And, and uh, so those people end up not having jobs and trying to figure out, okay, how do I migrate to another country where there's a market that can afford to pay for my services? Now that I, I've acquired these skills, but I need to go somewhere where people can afford to pay for it. And that causes the brain drain and it causes all the displacement and migration displacement. Uh, and uh, so it's a major problem. But the solution to that is uh, not the lack of investment in putting in industry in those countries. It's the lack of demand among the population. If the population cannot pay for the better things in life, uh, then nobody's going to have an incentive to go and try to deliver those things into those countries. Uh, and um, so we we have a project here. How do we close the economic gaps uh, in developing countries? And the way to that is uh, the big problem right now is that 90% or 85% of the population of those countries has nothing to offer the world market that the world market is willing to pay for. And so if they've got nothing to offer to anybody that anybody else values, they have nothing that they can use to pay for products and services from those others. So that's dragging the entire world economy down, not just their own, but it's really a lost potential. If we could find a way so that all those uh, those people, that 80, 90% of the people in many of those developing countries could become really productive members of society, and could afford to participate in the economy, uh, the, the whole economy could grow here by four, five, six times what it currently is. We still have to make sure that that growth is not at the cost of of, uh, uh, of the of the environment of the planet, but uh, of the resources of the planet. But potentially, it could be done and and um, enable everybody to share, which would finance. The infrastructure, finance, the healthcare, the future education, all of those things could then be financed if everybody was able to participate. The key to having those people having something of value to offer to the rest of the world is they need education. So now we, we see that closed loop that the, the we have to not say let's increase the number getting an education from 10% to 15% or 20% to 30% or whatever, that's not going to solve their problem. We have to find a way. How do we raise the masses, the bulk, the 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 uh, ability of the bulk of the population all over the world to where everybody has something to offer, something of value, some knowledge, some skill, um, where they, they can offer something to somebody else uh, to... Uh, acquire the means to be able to be a participant in the economy and, and become a market. China, basically, when they went here and said, first of all, let's build a whole bunch of stuff. In the end, what they really ended up doing was creating a big middle class. And now for many Western countries or in industries, China is more important as a market than they are as a manufacturer. Right. Um. But we are seeing a lot of, unfortunately, a slowing down of the like population growth rate in China and mm -hmm. also uh, taking place basically all over the world, except 
recently I, the, the UN just announced the 8 billion person was born a few days yes. ago. Yeah. And the estimate is we will reach 10 billion somewhere in the 2050s. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we were only at 2.5 billion in 1950. And uh, even right now, the estimate is uh, that we have 70% more people on the planet. In other words, for us just to take care of the people right now that we have on the planet, we would need 1.7 or 170% of the resources that our planet has, and and which is a is a huge problem. So uh, in many parts of the world, one could argue about the the one child policy and this and that, but the 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 population growth. If you look at Pakistan, Pakistan is about 220 million right now. Uh, they're estimating being at potentially 360 million uh, in the in the 2050s in 30 years. Now, uh, most of those people are going to be born into the poor segments of society. Right now, Pakistan has the second highest number of children in the world not in school. What is it going to be when when they get all those additional? Because most of the people born between now and 2050 are going to be young people. <laughs> you know, even at that point. So if they can't afford to educate and feed their, their population now, what is all that stress of additional population going to be? So that, that becomes one of the problems. But we know in China, it's not just about the one child policy. We know a lot of young people are into family planning now. They're saying they're recognizing, hey, we can afford to have so many children and, and be able to provide them uh, a good future. Uh, and and they deliberately limit the number of children they, they have for that reason. Uh, if we educate, if we can get the education in those other countries where people see the same opportunity, that goes hand in hand with the whole thing of gender equality. Because what we see is in countries where the only thing women are seen to be good for is having and raising children. Uh, and the more children they have, the, the, the worse the job is they're able to do in raising those children. So, um, but if we can get the education there, we see that, uh, that that can change those attitudes. There are parts of India where the, uh, the birth rate is, is uh, significantly slowing down because they are seeing the connection between the number of children and the standard of living that they're able to have and provide for their children. Um, I think we're almost out of time here, but just a really quick question. Uh, I mean, we're seeing the population grow all over the world. Um, the war in Ukraine is still going on. In fact, just yesterday or the day before, uh, missiles hit Poland and tensions are increasing. We just had a midterm election and political tensions are unfortunately continuing to grow it seems like every time we take a step forward in SKG development global improvement we take two steps back mm -hmm. i feel like every government in the world is almost like trying to delay the uh kind of uh decline economic decline but in reality we need to kind of open our eyes and yeah. get it done right now this is what the United Nations has put the emphasis on multilateralism, which was something everybody agreed to in the past. 
But right now, there's so many countries like we have certain movements in the United States saying America first. Uh, you know, it sort of reminds people of uh, Deutschland über alles, which was, uh, you know, Hitler's thing uh, back in the in the 1930s. Uh, but you can't go you can go and do a perfect job in your country with all the SDGs and you're not going to protect yourself against climate change because it takes the whole world working together. If we are going to effectively address many of the SDG pandemics, same thing, uh, the uh, the the energy crisis, the food crises in the world. And yet more and more countries uh, seem focused on how do we protect our national interests uh, rather than uh, they're putting that priority higher than solving the problems worldwide. Uh, and this is is exactly what the Secretary General was talking about, uh, especially in, in 2019, uh, that uh, uh, more and more people, not just the countries, but the individuals within the countries, are saying, you know what, let's not worry so much about what's going on in other parts of the world. Let's worry about what's going on, what what's happening for us. Uh, so they they you get the idea. Let's let's not let migrants in. Uh, let's uh, let's shut the make uh, world trade more difficult. Let's make it so it it benefits our uh, our companies. Uh, let's not worry about uh, energy, uh, uh, about uh, using fossil fuels and polluting the world, uh, because uh, you know right now we'd we'd have to take a loss, a cut in income. If if uh, if we don't use the cheapest form of uh, of energy, and uh, I'm not willing to to make that sacrifice, uh, and so then you get all these people that are going out there and saying hey, climate change doesn't exist, uh, you know, and and yet we see year to year the evidence. Uh, just think of the floods in Pakistan this year. Never had anything like that. It's in Nigeria has gone through exactly the same kind of catastrophic flooding. Uh, we just have to look at the hurricanes in, in Florida, uh, look at the flooding that we've had in the United States, look at the fires that uh, are out of control. So the drought affecting Eastern Africa that uh, uh, that, that has such a high percentage of the population has turned them into, into uh, uh, total refugees, uh, their whole ability to grow food or, or have their animals survive has, uh, has disappeared. Um, so uh, it, it's it's harder and harder, you know, to for people to just say, oh, no, that doesn't exist. Uh, but they, the fact still remains is that more and more people are saying, well, sorry about that. I, I just care about me. Just let's just take care of me. Let's take care of my community, my state, my country. Uh, and the other people out there, they're not my concern. Uh, and that's 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 a major challenge for an organization like the UN. And that's what leads to so many of the conflicts. There's more conflicts going on. We see Ukraine, but we have to remember, look at what's going on with the Rohingya in, in, uh, in Myanmar. Uh, let's let's look at uh, at uh, uh, there are so many conflicts going on in northern Ethiopia. Uh, look at Eastern DR Congo. Uh, there, there are just so many conflicts taking place around the world, uh, and um, and and so much of uh, of this is due to that attitude of uh, let's focus and just take care of us. So 
part of what we are looking to do by going here and and getting large numbers of people to see that they can help raise. Because I think that the problem is right now, a lot of people in places like the United States or Europe say, well, we're, we have 20 times as much wealth and income as people in some of the developing countries go. Well, if we're going to create some kind of equality, since we only represent 10, 20 percent of the population in the world, uh, that, uh, you know, we would have to give up 75 percent of what we have if we wanted to go and help bring those developing company, countries up to our standard. And uh, uh, there's not a willingness to do that. But to the degree we can show them that by by going and helping raise up those markets, uh, the, those those countries, uh, we we actually can create more wealth opportunities even in the developed countries. This was the part of the thinking, at least, that was behind the Marshall Plan after World War II. Part of it, yes, was to to uh, to block the the communism from spreading to Russia. Uh, into Europe to, to stop that by giving uh, the Europeans a future. But a big part of it was American companies uh, wanted to get back to the, the pre-war days. Prior to the war, uh, there was a lot of trade going for, back and forth between Europe and, and the United States that benefited the companies in, in the United States, also benefited the companies in Europe. But that, that got lost after the war. So by helping rebuild uh, Europe, they they built up those markets so that they the the Europeans could uh, produce things and have money so that they could spend on on American products and services, and so it was seen as an investment. It was a huge investment, but it enabled within three or four years the uh, the GDP of the major uh, European countries that had been totally destroyed during the war was back to a level prior to war, a pre-war level of GDP within a few years of concentrated effort to, to rebuild those markets. Those need to be examples that we follow, but we have to overcome that, that um polarizing politics that maybe exists right now there where there's there's a lack of of faith in institutions whether that institution is a news uh, uh, network or uh, is a government uh, there are just too many people that say I don't trust the government I don't trust I don't trust big business I don't trust the elites uh, the so, but this goes back to allowing too big a gap on uh, between the wealthy and the average in the populations. When England uh, was voting uh, voted for Brexit, and it, it's very very clear, the cities voted to stay part of Europe, and it was the countryside uh, that voted uh, to break away from uh, from Europe. And it was interesting that uh, I, I heard some uh, of the, uh, the people in the, the, the news industry and some others there uh, from, uh, from London and Birmingham saying, what's interesting is in their whole lives, they had never set foot into any of the counties that voted for breakfast or uh, um, 
Brexit, uh, the, 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 the population had become so segregated. And, you know, I, I have heard uh, from Texas, I've heard some of the politicians say there that those people on the, uh, on the East Coast, they just don't belong to us. They don't belong with us. They have a whole different philosophy to, and attitude to life. Uh, they have a different value system. They're not our people. And uh, yet, the the one of the dangers that I, that I see, if we don't act, and we allow certain segments of of geographic or whatever to be left behind, maybe they're opting out. They say, you know what, all that technology is going to do away with our jobs. We're we're not going to allow those technologies in our neighborhood. But that re results in those communities losing a lot of economic position and the gap is just going to grow further and further if it grows too far it, i don't know if you recall from hg uh, wells book the time machine about the eloy, eloy and the morlocks where society had evolved into two distinct species almost and uh, uh the where the one side saw the other side as their slave labor but that other side saw the, the the Eloy enjoying time in the sun and having all the food put in front of them. They saw them like cattle. That was their source. That was their source of food. They ate them. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we have a risk in the world that if this polarization is allowed to go too far, uh, that the people who live almost like in, in the more... Um, I hate to say primitive, but more, but less technologically advanced, and and others are in the the top of the technology advancement. These two groups can grow so far apart that they will essentially be like two different species. And it's not like we've never seen that. If you look at South Africa during apartheid, uh, you you will see that you had a wealthy elite. And they had an economy that basically worked within themselves. Yes, did they had, take advantage almost of slave labor uh, to a certain degree? But that's going to go away when the robots are here. So the but you you had an economy that was working at living at a sustain a, a subsistence level, and you had an economy up here that's working that's living at the at a at a total high level, and those two economies were not dependent on each other. But it was very hard to move from one of those economies into the other. Yeah. Uh, the thing you were saying about um, the thing about Texas and uh, kind of like not even recognizing the people of from the East Coast, because quite frankly, America is so large and even more generally, the world is so large. We can't possibly take into account every single uh, population of every group of people it seems almost like an impossible issue to solve but um i, I think you have to look at the people um it, there's um there's a group of sociologists in in belgium that were studying uh, this uh this um, evolution of this this polarization and they track it back to around 1995 when, when they saw that starting to happen. And initially people saw that the left behind group 
If you look even in Eastern Germany here, uh, the rural communities were basically cut off. They were, nobody was investing in those areas. The jobs were going down. If you go and look at places like uh, Ohio and, and, and old what they call the Rust Belt now, and you see how the job opportunities have disappeared, how we have increasing uh, suicides as, as um, uh, death, deaths of despair, they call it. Uh, where uh, life has changed quicker than people were able to adjust. And uh, a lot of people, there was, there's been a mindset, my generation, a lot of uh, the, the folks that went to school with me, the idea was you went to school, you got your education, and that education served you for a lifetime. And then along comes here, I, I remember seeing a story uh, as uh, uh, when the... Uh, uh, the fuel injection uh, replaced carburetors and cars and even airplanes, uh, how a lot of people uh, lost jobs because they were not willing to go and invest in learning how to maintain and, and work with those new technologies because they said, look, I paid my dues. I learned. I'm, I'm an expert here on knowing how to tune carburetors and, and working with that kind of, uh, of engines. Uh, I, I'm not willing to go and, and start over again with a, this, this newer technology. And uh, uh, I think that attitude is changing. That's why the whole push in the UN about preparing people for lifelong learning, because you have to constantly be reinventing yourself and getting your knowledge up to date. But there's going to be a big turmoil because of those people who uh, still of, of, let's say, uh, from a certain age, who feel I, I shouldn't have to do that. And there was a, an interesting interview with the uh, the uh, former commission of education of West Virginia. Uh, happens to be the wife of Senator uh, 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 Mentioner there, uh, who was causing the Democrats so much problem. But she was saying here that not too long ago, one of the major problems they were encountering in West Virginia was that parents did not want their kids to get a great education. Yeah. Because they said when their kids get a good education and if they go away to a, a top university, they never go back to West Virginia because there were just no jobs in West Virginia for people with those higher level skills. And so families felt they lost their children uh, due to that. That's just... I think life, if you want to be in IT, uh, right now there's certain places in the world that have more advantages than other places, Silicon Valley, uh, the Austin, Texas uh, area, uh, that, uh, and it used to be here, that was Route 128 around Boston. So, you know, we see this, that what happens is you get a concentration of people with certain skills that attracts the investors who are investing in those areas that need those skills. And because of all the investment there, that attracts even more people with the skills to that area. And, and, and that's how you get those concentrations. I don't see any way you're ever going to stop that. It may happen here when everybody's able to work remotely from anywhere. Uh, but uh, that's, that's just the way it goes. So if you are living in a, in a remote community in the desert, uh, and, and you want to study my marine biology, the odds are you're not going to find a job yeah. uh, in, in your hometown. Uh, 
but the the bigger challenge is here between people that said um in, they phrase that in in this one group here phrased it as the anywhere people versus the somewhere people there are people in certain communities they establish the definition of who they are based on that community there that's that I, that's who they are there are other people that go and they base the, their definition of themselves on what they can do. And what you tend to see is that the one group is a fear change. They don't want change. They want things to stay the same. Uh, they, they don't have a lot of confidence that that change in the future is good for them. And then you have the other group here who's out there and saying the quicker the changes come, uh, the more opportunities. And that's great. I want I want all those changes. I want that future. So uh, you've got one group that's saying, oh, it was so much better back in the 1950s. Can we go back to that? And, and the other group saying here, boy, I can't wait for 2050. Uh, so and, and those two groups um, get to be at loggerheads with one another. And and that's a little bit, I think, of the of the challenge that that uh, we've got. But that doesn't stop the fact that everybody wants to have a secure home. Everybody wants to be able to feed their family, get health care for their family, and so forth. And if if we can focus on how to do those things, maybe we're going to avoid some of the worst problems. But at the same time, we got artificial intelligence coming along, and the estimates are that's going to wipe out as many as 50% of all the world's jobs. Uh, and not just the jobs, uh, blue-class jobs, uh, blue-collar jobs. A couple of years ago, I was at a meeting, uh, and we had a speaker who was from the, he was the business manager, a, a, a business executive of the sixth largest hospital chain in America. He put a device on the table that was not much bigger than a, than a cell phone and said, within 10 years, that is going to replace most family doctors. Uh, and they, that group is already very active here. In, uh, uh, they have these telepresence robots. Uh, they have like they have their hospitals and then they have clinics surrounding that become a feeder system into the hospitals. And to be able to maximize the, the reach or the efficient effectiveness of their their top uh, doctors, uh, they they have telemed uh, uh, these these telepresence robots that are able to go around and visit the patients and able to uh, see all of the, uh, the the test results and their blood pressure and temperature and all you know all, all the whatever they need to be done. And, and be able to treat or, or interact with the patient, even though they might be a thousand miles away. And they're, they're already doing that in a, in a big scale. And uh, so we have to think here that there's going to be a lot fewer doctors. There's going to be a lot fewer already. Lawyers are, are heavily impacted. Uh, so when we look and we say, what, what profession is, is safe? Is it going to be authors? Right now, there's a number of books that have been published sure. that are written totally by uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, a lot of graphic arts work is now being done by uh, 
by artificial intelligence. Uh, a lot of the articles published in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are, are written by artificial intelligence. Even if it's not 100%, instead of needing 10 people to write all the articles, maybe you have one person supported by AI that can now do what 10 people used to do. So it, this is going to create that, that disruption between the the don't want change versus want change, that is going to exacerbate that conflict. And that's going to turn into a political conflict where you've got the, the 10% with all the technological advances who will literally have the opportunity if there was a war between the 90% and the 10%, the 10% is almost guaranteed to win because they have the means uh, to annihilate the bottom 90%. Uh, and so, you know, when the UN is looking at these problems and saying, okay, our job is to promote peace. So we have to avoid these situations getting that bad. That's why the Secretary General lists disruptive technologies at the, in the same category as nuclear war and, and climate change uh, as as a problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a lot. The world has a lot of problems, but I feel like as long as we have people who are willing to step up, make solutions, make change. Yeah. I think, I think humanity can like serve anything. That's the key to what we, we are saying here. Mm -hmm. The one thing we have to watch out, it's not about just doing something. Right. Rotary has done millions of projects over the last several decades. What do we have to show for it? Have, have, we, have we gotten the problems to be closer to their ultimate solution through all those efforts? We haven't. We haven't done that at all. Uh, so when we go here in the future, we've got to make sure the goals that we are setting are goals that truly address the problems. Uh, because if we go, it's almost like saying the ship is sinking. Well, that's okay. We have a solution that's going to pump the water out of the ship, but it's only going to pump the water out at half the speed that the water's coming in. Why bother with that solution? Because you know, in the end, you're going to lose. So we've got to go when we define the goals, make sure the goals are going to really solve the problem. And that's what we fail to do. Uh, almost uh, despite all those millions of projects there, we ask, why is there no overall global improvement on the SDGs? And when we go and say, how many of those projects had as their goal to move the needle on the overall situation regarding the SDGs? And it's essentially none. None of those projects have as their goal to solve the problems. Almost all the, pro the, the, the projects out there, they're about addressing the symptoms. All these people who are suffering due to floods or droughts, we're, we're going and we say, we've got to help the people. We've got to, we got to go and solve this problem. we got to go and, 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 and but we're, we're dealing with the suffering that is the consequence of the problem and not the problem. So it's almost like when we say, okay, there's so many poor children right now. Uh, how can we increase the school capacities to to be able to support all the the children in like the 23 million in in Pakistan that are not in school? Well, what is that doing about the fact that it's going to be 50 million children in, out of school in Pakistan in 30 years? Uh, so we're we're not 
we're 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 putting bandages on the symptoms. We're not addressing the causes of the of the 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 suffering and the symptoms in the first place. That's one of the two major problems. And the other problem is, again, going back to nobody is trying to move the global needle, is almost all projects have been local. Uh, let's make some boreholes in this town or this community. Let's go build a clinic in that community. Let's go build a school in this community. Uh, those, those have a goal to build a local school. We build a local school, but unless an awful lot of other people build local schools, it doesn't move the global needle. And uh, so as a result, we look at the, the, the World Bank statistics and we keep asking ourselves, well, how can there be so many projects going on, but we don't see any, any global impact? And it's because nobody has as the goal of their project is to move the global needle. And this is something here that, that we feel we have to start going and setting the goals based on what's needed. We know with climate change, we have to move the global needle. You could totally clean up your environment in your community, in your city, in your state, and that's not going to protect you against the, the droughts and the floods being caused by climate change in the world. So, so the, why bother doing something that is not going to achieve what's needed? We have to set the goals based on what's needed, even if we don't know how to do it. Set the goal based, and that's what we need. Now, since we've got clarity as to what we need, we can now apply ourselves to going out and searching for solutions that could possibly achieve the goals that are that are needed. Uh, and, and that's something we don't do now because people are not good it, when they see a really big problem and they say, I don't know how to do that, they don't try. You know, this goes by back to why we say, you know, Steve Jobs, when he said, those who think they can change the world are the ones who do. And when we analyze, why is that so? We say, well, because the people who think they can are the ones who try. And only those who try can succeed. So the, the key here is you can't hit what you don't aim for. So if we need to go and, and solve the problem globally, that's what we need to be aiming for. Uh, and regardless of how difficult it is to find a solution for that, but that's what's needed. You know, it's not going to help. We can take the whole United States can become carbon neutral and, and, and totally pristine and no plastic anywhere. And, and guess what? If if the rest of the world doesn't change their climate uh, behavior, uh, if the world becomes unlivable, it becomes unlivable for people living in North America just as much as anywhere else. Yeah. Well, I think I have no uh, other questions. I think uh, it's a good conversation. I, I really appreciate the, the ideas that you put forth about setting a goal that can actually create noticeable and viable change and how, yeah, it's about globalization. It's not about localization. Yeah. And that's totally, we need to disregard whether we know how to solve the problem or we think it's even solvable because we need to solve it, regardless of whether we think we can. And so I think back to President Kennedy 
in in the 1960s when he when he inspired the country by announcing that the U.S. would put a man on the moon in ten year in in ten years. And just a couple of sentences after that, he says, "Well, we don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it anyway." Yeah. And so we have to take that attitude. We have to say, "This is the goal that's needed." We may not know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it anyway. Exactly. And if we and so that way we at least try. I think I've mentioned to you in the past about I I would visit Rotary clubs and I would often ask how many of you have raised a million dollars or more for a cause. I don't think I ever had a hand go up. And I said, how many of you have ever tried to raise a million dollars or more for a cause? No hands. How many of you think you could go out right now and raise a million dollars? No hands. How many of you have given serious thought as to how you might raise a million dollars? No hands. So if, if, if my conclusion to that is, if you've never tried to raise a million dollars and you've never even given serious thought as to how you might be able to do it, how do you know you can't? But it's human nature that we don't try if we are uncertain about our ability to succeed. We, we don't try. And if you don't try, you can't succeed. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know who said this, but it's like, how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite <laughs> at a time and keep going. I, actually, it's a, it's a little different from that because I think that's one of the major reasons why we are failing to oh, achieve yeah. the goals because of this attitude of incremental. Let's just take, you know, one bite at a time. If you imagine here a war situation and you've got an army out there and, you know, you go out there and say, OK, we're going to just do something in, the, in this uh, segment of the, the war theater. We'll, we'll fight a battle over here and we'll fight a battle over there and, uh, and, and, and we can win. Well, there are examples out there of armies that have won every battle, but they lost the war yes. uh, because it's the one who has the plan for the overall thing that wins. And so we really need to get more people or we need to get less people thinking like sergeants and corporals and more people thinking like generals, because at the end of the day, it's not the, the corporal down in the trenches that's fighting the, the battle that wins the, the war. It's the generals in the back that are planning the logistics and planning the tactics and, and the strategies and so forth. Uh, they don't get featured in the hero films because that's just you know sitting in a nice cushy job that back there uh, that's not our mindset of a hero we see the person that's out there fighting with their last breath uh, uh that uh to be the, the hero but again that's not the ones who actually win the wars and and we we have to come to grips with that uh, so that we, we have to have a plan. One of the biggest things right now in education, when we look at the education gaps here in the U.S., is to say to the education commissioners, the state education commissioners, okay, you've got these cities over here, these towns, uh, and there's no schools in those towns that have ever gotten even 10% of their kids to be at grade level. What's your plan? What's the plan that is going to close the gap between those communities and these other communities regarding education. And right now, if, if I was to go and ask those kinds of questions publicly, I'd never be invited to meetings anymore because uh, the, the truth of the matter is 
that almost nobody has any plans for solving the problems. You know, it's like the climate change. Uh, okay, every country agrees to try to achieve a certain subset of the overall goal, but they don't go out and say, okay, who's got the plans? Who's got the plans that add up to success, to overall success? And if nobody has a plan, why should I believe they're going to be successful? Exactly. Um, so you plan to eat the whole elephant. You plan to cook the whole <laughs> elephant, but and it's, it's true you you can't eat it all in one sitting. <laughs> well, I think we're uh, almost out of time again. Yeah, yeah. I want to thank you for sitting down and telling uh, the audience all of this like incredibly valuable information. That's it should be public information. Everyone should know everything mm -hmm. that you're saying right now. Um. My goal is to spread knowledge just like how you're doing by inviting on speakers like yourself who teach the youth because my targeted audience is young people like myself who want to learn more and do more. So well, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity. And uh, uh, I, I think what you're doing is great. Uh, encourage those young people to have faith in their ability to make a difference you know one of the things in our club uh, is uh, we believe in working to create extraordinary opportunities for young people to do more with their lives than they or their parents or teachers ever dreamed possible uh, and we've got to convince young people that yes you can do it just dare to try just like that 10 year old girl in Iowa uh, you just have to try um, the other thing to keep in mind is, as we say, we're trying to become the go-to place for those who are crazy enough to think they can change the world, the whole world, and daring enough to try. So anybody out there that you come across that is interested in saying, you know, hey, I want to be part of, of making dramatic change in the world. We are very much interested. You know uh, the information to uh, to connect uh, and please invite anybody who would like to know more or see how they can get involved. Um, we would be happy to do what we can to help them uh, do more than they ever dreamed they could. Right. Oh, can I leave your contact information in the description of this episode so anyone can reach out? Sure. All right. Okay. Thank you, so Thank you very much. In the description of this episode, you will find a link to the Dare to Be Great Rotary Organization's YouTube channel, where we have released many of our initiatives and meetings. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do not forget to follow, share, and leave a positive review below. Also, don't forget to sign up to the Medium newsletter that we'll be releasing alongside every episode. Thank you so much to Bill Graham again for participating. The next episode will be releasing on December 4th. Please mark that in your calendars, and until then, thank you, and stay curious.